If you got one more almost Christmas passage left in you tonight, it's not quite a Christmas passage, but it's sort of in between, and um, I think it'll be a blessing to you tonight. Luke chapter 2, verse 39 is where we're going to begin this evening. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 39. Brandon was telling me some years ago he preached a message on this uh, passage, and if I remember right, he said he called it, uh, Honey, We've Lost the Savior. <laughs> so, so that's a, it's an interesting passage. One of those that I think almost everybody that grew up in church remembers from Sunday school, but we don't often talk about it as adults as much, but a really rich passage. Luke chapter 2, uh, 39 to 52. If it's all right, we're just going to begin with the scripture tonight, and then we're going to say a word of prayer and then uh, just dive right in, okay? Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray together. Father, would you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, speak to us tonight as only you can. May we be blessed, encouraged, challenged, reminded in any other appropriate way in which you would seek to move. We thank you, Father, for being even here with us tonight uh, as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when I was younger, I was about uh, in early high school, 15, 16 years old, uh, had a pretty significant case of acne, uh, just where, like a lot of teenagers, you know, we walk through that. And uh, I remember the point where it finally got to a place where my parents said, you know, why don't we take you somewhere, let you get some medicine, see if that can, you know, kind of get cleared up, help you with that a little bit. And so I said, okay, you know, all right, I'll do. So, so first time ever being at a dermatologist. And of course, the dermatologist walks in. I don't, I've not been around too many dermatologists, but this guy walked in and it was like his skin was just glowing. Like he, you know, he had supernatural skin from somewhere else. And so he, you know, it felt a little bit like I was out of place even then. But, but I remember that day, one of the things that was so significant is that I couldn't focus so much on the help that was about to be provided for me in whatever medicine they were going to give me and kind of, well, let's get through this. Uh, but what I do remember is I remember it being really a vulnerable experience because I knew I had acne and I knew that other people probably knew I had acne. But as I sat in there and the doctor looked at my face and clinically diagnosed acne, there was this kind of nowhere to retreat and nowhere to hide. You ever, you know, 
all of us, we know that we've got issues, don't we? Each one of us know our own issues. You know what really is awful when other people see them, when it's tough. And that day, one of the things that I remember that dermatologist looking at me, and he's, he's describing, you know, you're going to put this gel on your face and you're going to do this. And, you know, this is going to be the process. You're going to take this medicine and we're going to clear this stuff up. But he said, it's going to be about an eight to 10 week process. And then this is what he said. It's going to get worse before it gets better. I'm going to pull all that stuff out from down below that's, you know, clogged up or trying to get out. It's, it's going to start looking worse over the next three or four weeks, but don't despair it's going to get better. Now, Simeon, whenever Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple for that, that uh, time to, to come in and fulfill the law, if you look back up in, in your text in the Bible at verse 35, I'd like to just sort of start there and then dive into what we've got today, just to be reminded of his words. He's speaking about Jesus and he's speaking uh, specifically to Mary it says in verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon gives a kind of function statement for Jesus' ministry, and certainly we could probably list multiple ways that, uh, that, that Jesus' function, his ministry, his purpose on earth. But one of the things that Simeon says Jesus came to do was to reveal the, the inner workings of the heart to people and to work through that. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'd love to just kind of, you know, if acne treatment's going to be sort of the comparison, I'd love to just get my pictures airbrushed and said sometimes instead of drawing that stuff up and making it worse before it gets better. And Simeon speaks to Mary and Joseph, and he begins to walk through, you know, this is not going to be all sunshine and rainbows. There's going to be some difficulty here, but Jesus is going to draw the th thoughts of hearts to the surface. And there will be people who seem religious that in the presence of Jesus choose rebellion. And there will be people who seem far off and yet in the presence of Jesus and their willingness to surrender, they will find life. And so we see from the very beginning that Jesus' function in our hearts and in our lives is not as an airbrusher but a thought revealer, a heart revealer, a drawing out. For God to do His work in our hearts and in our lives, that's got to start with a significant uh, movement in us. So the first point I've got on your page tonight, Jesus' work in us brings to the surface what needs to be revealed and healed. And sometimes it has to get more difficult before it gets better. The work of the Holy Spirit in our life is to not allow our hearts to be satisfied far from Christ. And so in the life of a believer, in the life of an unbeliever whom God is working on, in all of that, Jesus is not going to be okay airbrushing you into a certain appearance if what you need is a heart adjustment. Now that may take time, that may be something that comes in a certain you know, uh, stage and, and, and in, in stages, but Jesus is not simply concerned with the outer appearance of man but God looks on the heart, as the Scripture says. So Jesus' work in us brings to the surface what needs to be revealed and healed, and sometimes it has to get more difficult before it gets better. You ever walk through a time in your life where God did something really great, but it meant walking through something really hard? 
and it was a road you probably wouldn't want to walk again. I want to show you some pictures here tonight of what it looked like to go to Jerusalem. I don't know any of you in here who have been parents, who are parents, if you've never lost your kid for three days, uh, you are doing better than Mary and Joseph did in this story. You know, we, we, uh, we, we kind of, we'll dive into that here in a minute, but what, a, what an incredible uh, time for what it must have been like for them to experience this, and you can imagine uh, how fearful they, they were in the midst of all this. But here's a few pictures. You know, to come from Nazareth down to Jerusalem, usually there, usually there were one of two ways uh, to try to get, the, uh, to get there. This picture shows sort of crossing through Samaria, some of the areas that you would uh, get to go through if you came down on the western route through the more developed, nicer, greener territory, you could come down through Samaria. Jews often avoided that, but you'll see even Jesus in John 4 going to Samaria specifically to speak to a woman who's going to be at a well. So perhaps when he went to the woman at the well, he remembered the road that they had taken through Samaria even to get to Jerusalem. Those from Nazareth would have had an easy way to go uh, into Samaria. It was particularly sort of right next door to go that way. We don't know for sure which way he went. Uh, this is another shot of some of that territory, fields near Shechem. This is a picture from the early 1900s uh, with an area that's highly developed today, but back then there was only this dirt road that was there. It was just called the Road of the Patriarchs. It was built right over top of the paths that people had been traveling for centuries and millennia, and who knows, maybe even the Lord Jesus and his family went over this same stretch of ground on the way to Jerusalem. Now, the Passover feast while it had an incredible spiritual significance, it also was kind of the furniture market for Jerusalem. It was the time where everybody came, it was a big event, and it was wall to wall. Here's uh, some pictures of what Passover tends to look like in Samaria, uh, in, in, um, in the, the area around, you know, in, in Israel today, not in, in downtown Jerusalem, but in other areas. You can see it's, uh, it's a lot of people, and you have the slaying of these lambs, and you would go and either bring in your lamb, and it would get prepared by somebody, and then you'd take it back and prepare to have a feast. But this was a lot of people, a lot of festivity, a big event, a crowded place. You probably wouldn't want to lose your child in High Point on a normal day. It might be especially stressful if you found out during furniture market you weren't quite sure where they were. Passover Seder meal, as you've probably seen before, but that's what uh, would be served and that's what would be walked through together for those who are remembering the significance of what had happened in the Exodus and pointing forward to what Jesus would ultimately fulfill uh, in his sacrifice. And so the, uh, I've actually got the fourth point that I'll go ahead and give you here tonight. The Passover significance is being connected to Jesus even from a young earthly age. And so we see again and again in the Gospels the Passover and Jesus being connected. There's several Passover feasts where he is uh, mentioned having done different things in the Gospels, but we also see uh, that, uh, that he's being connected to that, that he's going to be the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's ultimately going to be the fulfillment of Passover. I don't know how many of you like hiking, but when you see the language in the Gospels, or you'll, you'll always see this phrase that they went up to Jerusalem. And up doesn't mean north, up means up. Jerusalem's on a hill, 
and everything else is below it. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan where Jesus says a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. All directions were down out of Jerusalem. It was situated there on a hill. Y'all see this group here? Look at that hill. You know that Psalms have uh, songs of ascent that you've seen there, the songs that would be sung while you're going up a hill. How many of you would like to try to go up that hill and sing at the same time? These were tougher people back then, less uh, trans fats or sugars or something. They were able to do that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, the, they're coming in and out of Jerusalem. You see kind of a little bit of the wall there up at the top, but they're uh, coming into the city and what it would have been like for them to constantly be ascending. The picture there of what it was like to know you were going towards a holy site, a place of, of holy experience, and you're going up. That's kind of a really neat uh, symbolism that's there. And so we come to the passage today, and let me just kind of mention a couple other points here really quickly as well too. We come to verse 39 and 40, and this is what Luke does to finish Jesus' infancy narrative. Luke 2, 39 and 40, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. When they'd performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Now, we know that that doesn't just mean that after meeting Simeon and Anna, that they just went to Galilee and that was it. Well, we know from Matthew's gospel what happened. Well, eventually there were some magi who came and eventually there was a flight to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill uh, the, the newborn king that had been there. And so you've got this fleeing that, that happens and none of that is mentioned in Luke's gospel. It's simply summed up really quickly to say when everything that was in the law of the Lord had been fulfilled, they returned into Galilee. The Old Testament uses the term law sometimes interchangeably. When we hear law, we think of rules, don't we? But law is sometimes interchangeable with the word of the Lord. And so when Jesus had fulfilled everything that had been prophesied about him, you remember Matthew saying that Hosea was ultimately fulfilled when Jesus returned from Egypt out of exile or out of Egypt I called my son that Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfilled that. When everything had been fulfilled, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The Christmas story so far has been filled with difficulty and deliverance, waiting and wonder, W-O-N-D-E-R. They've wandered some too, but wonder. See the word amazed quite a bit tonight. We'll talk about that in a minute, but difficulty, and deliverance, waiting, and wonder. There's no room at the inn. The baby is gonna go in a manger. There's a way in which now for the rest of my life there'll be so many people who don't believe the story about the angel uh, who has come to where Jesus even later on in his life is seeming to take shots from folks at times who say we know who our father is as if to say there's some question about you. There's a trust that's going to have to be there. And Mary and Joseph have both walked a difficult road, even up to the birth and having to flee for their lives to Egypt. But there's been the deliverance of God all along the way, that God's been faithful, that God has brought not only Jesus into the world in this way, uh, but that Jesus was going to be the deliverer that the world needed. Waiting and wonder. 
The third point I've got for you to go along with that waiting tonight is we often go from waiting into waiting. We often go from waiting into waiting. If you've ever been to the doctor, you, you found that to be true, right? Amen. So you wait out in the room outside in the lobby, and then, oh, your number gets called, you get to go back, and then you sit in the other room and wait, don't you? Sometimes longer than the first room you were in. You go from waiting into waiting. Mary and Joseph were waiting for the birth of the baby. Jesus is born and they're waiting to see what it's going to mean. And all of a sudden they're thrust into having to leave for Egypt. And then finally they're able to make their way back and they're waiting to see what that's going to mean. And now Jesus is going to be 12 years old before anything is mentioned about just the significant portion of, of his uh, teenage and, and childhood life. We often go from waiting into waiting. You're done with one season and you say, well, now it must mean this. Well, no, sometimes God's plan for us is to learn things in waiting that we don't learn any other way. And we see the patient hand of God at work. You know, God never seems to be in a hurry in the scriptures. We often get in a hurry, don't we? We often don't understand why not now, but God has a plan. We often go from waiting into waiting. Verse 40, and the child grew became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. But he was waiting. Now, as I mentioned, we come to the Passover again in verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. Some of you in here who are parents, I don't know if you think back and say, what was the scariest moment for me as a parent? What was the time where I thought, oh no, what, what in the world? Uh, we had, when we, uh, we had our first child and, and, and a little Avery, she's 14 now, but when she was just a couple weeks old, uh, my wife was going down the stairs. We had some unfinished basement stairs that just led into a garage. And this is the only time this ever happened to her, but she happened to be carrying Annabelle. And all of a sudden, you know, feet flew out from under her. Annabelle goes over the side down onto the concrete slab, you know, about two weeks before that, um, we had had a, a company come in and, and install a little soft duct to go into the indoor heat and air unit in there, and she landed on that soft duct. Um, the Lord was gracious in that. But I remember the phone call getting from my wife to say, you know, I think she's okay. We got to get her to the doctor. You know, we were brand new parents. We didn't realize babies bounced yet. Some of y'all had <laughs> kids and you just, you know. God made them to bounce. She was fussy, but she was fine. It didn't, you know, no broken bones, no bloody nose, nothing. She was, she was totally fine. But I remember what it was like to answer the phone for the next six months and wonder, ooh, is, is it going to be another tough call before it finally wore away? Mary and Joseph are with this huge procession of people. And this is how you know you have a well-behaved child you don't even have to check where he is, right? He's fine. I'm sure he's with somebody. This is Jesus we're talking about. I'm, I'm sure he's, you know, he's 
from where he is. <laughs> they used the word supposed. We often use the word assume. They made a, a supposition. This, I'm sure he's with this person or that person. They just supposed he was there. So probably all of us in this room have gotten in trouble at some point for supposing something, haven't we? They just thought, well, uh, certainly that's where he is. And all of a sudden when they start to look, they realize uh, that he's not there. Now, depending on the math, it may be that it was three more days before they found him, which means we're talking about four or five days, or it may have been three days in total. It's not terribly specific here, but after multiple days, they find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. I can't help but picture my own mother when I think about this situation. What would my mother have said to me after three days? Any of y'all have a mom that said, oh, if he's alive, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> y'all ever, you know, my mom was a sweet lady, but you know, you, or is a sweet lady, but you know, you, you, you get into that situation where three days uh, you haven't been where you're supposed to be. And imagine the fear and uncertainty. When I was a kid, a movie came out called Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, where Kevin McAllister manages to board a flight by himself, travel to New York City, check into uh, the Plaza Hotel, and stay there for multiple days. But we know that's not what the experience would be like for a, a small child in a big city with nowhere to go. And you think, where has my child been spending the night? Has my child gotten any food? Has anybody tried to take advantage or hurt my child? Imagine all this going through their head for days and they can't find him and they can't find him and they can't find him. And all of a sudden they walk in and it seems as if there's been no, we're never told where Jesus went, who took care of Jesus, who he, you know, we're never told that. But we just see him perfectly fine sitting in the temple among the teachers, listening to them and asking them, questions. Verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Verse 48, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Number five, the pattern of amazement continues here with Jesus in the temple. Mary has been treasuring and pondering things in her heart. There have been angels speaking to shepherds. By this point, there have been magi who have come from the east to give them gold and frankincense and myrrh. There have been declarations from the heavens speaking about the newborn Messiah. There have been on and on and on. We see this amazement theme through the passage. And we kind of come to the end of that here. Two different words in Greek which are very similar to one another, both meaning astonishment, amazement. They're the same words that are used when Jesus calms the storm and the disciples aren't quite sure what to do when they realize that the person that is in the boat with them has authority to speak to the wind and the waves. It's the same word used that when Jesus is teaching, the people are looking at him going, we've never heard anybody teach with the kind of authority that you have, there's this astonishment and amazement. And it's happening to the people who are there in the room saying, we've never heard a 12-year-old kid be interested in this, much less speak about it so well and ask such driving questions. You come to Jesus' adult ministry, what do you see? You still see him asking questions, don't you? Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. You walk through almost any passage where Jesus is teaching, when he's interacting with another person, you'll see questions asked. That Jesus is drawing out 
the thoughts of people's hearts and allowing them to be the ones to speak and reveal what's on the inside. The pattern of amazement continues here with Jesus in the temple. Mary asked the question that I think any parent would ask. And she asked it about as gently as any parent could ask in that situation. Jesus was fortunate that an angel had foretold his birth and let her know a few things about him because maybe that makes her go a little easier. Why have you done this to us? Why have you done this to us? Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. How is it that Jesus stays behind for three or four days without his parents knowing he was gone and yet did not sin? (laughs) I really feel for Joseph and Mary what it must have been like to parent a child who was never wrong and never in sin. You imagine going back to the temple after three or four days and knowing when we get there, it's not Jesus who's wrong, it's us. <laughs> my, my two oldest are getting to the point where they're old enough to sort of sometimes, you know, be right and realize they're right, you know, when kids kind of get to that age. My youngest ones, I can still convince them they're wrong, even if they're not, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But for for Mary to ask this question just reveals so much about the pain of what she's been going through, and she can't help but come to Jesus and start to speak from her own perspective. Why have you treated us this way? Jesus, what you've done, no matter how amazed these other people are, do you realize what Joseph and I have gone through for the last three or four days? Do you realize what that's been like? Why have you treated us this way? Number six. Why have you done this or why have you treated us this way is the question we still ask Jesus today. And we ask this not only because we don't trust him, but because we fail to realize that he doesn't belong to us. We ask him this not only because we don't trust him. We we say verbally that we trust him, but we have those moments where we come to the Lord and we say, what are you doing? Why? Why? What is this? Why now? Why this way? When is it going to stop? We ask all these questions to say, do you know what you're doing or have you forgotten about me or can you, you know, let up a little bit on this Lord? And we ask this not only because we don't trust him, but because we fail to realize that he doesn't belong to us. His mother said to him, son, Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or some translations about my father's business. Did you not know that this is where I would be? Did you really have to go to the Chuck E. Cheese in Jerusalem yesterday before showing up at the temple today? Did you not know this is where I would be? Why did they, why were they there in Jerusalem for some time before they came to the temple to look for him? But Jesus is even in this moment challenging his parents, his his mother and, and Joseph by saying, my father's work is what I'm here to be about. That's why I'm here on this earth. That's what's primary. My father's business, my father's house is where You must have known or you should have known that I was. (laughs) And Mary and Joseph don't give a response back. (laughs) But they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 
You know, there's a lot of times that we won't understand what God is doing and why. And He doesn't owe us an answer. And He doesn't owe us letting, letting us take the reins. It's just not the way that it works. Submission to Jesus is recognizing that He's the one in control. When we seem to understand, when we feel like we're the ones that should know or or when he knows what he's doing, even when it doesn't seem clear to us. And so that goes into point number seven. Jesus' response reminds us that he's always at work and that he's Lord. The eternal Son of God, at 12 years of incarnate age here on the earth, was already the greatest religious mind of his day. That he was the Son of God, even in that moment. But I think there's times where that same response can come to us. Did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? Even when it's not our business. And then we see this amazing verse here in verse 51 and 52. He went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. I've gotten a chance to do a lot of premarital counseling through the years with young couples about to get married. I always get nervous going to that Ephesians 5 passage and trying to start out with them and say, okay, now I'll tell the fiance, the, the wife, you know, the, the, the you know, wife-to-be, if you can just get through this, I promise you what Paul says to the man is even tougher than what he says to the wife. But we come to that submit word and you just don't know where that's going to go, do you? And you have to speak through, you know, what does submission mean and what does it not mean? It doesn't mean that somebody becomes a doormat. It doesn't mean their opinion doesn't get heard. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, a second-class citizen. But you walk through this idea that there's a recognition of headship. Jesus is not submissive to Joseph and Mary because he knows less than Joseph and Mary. Jesus is not submissive to Joseph and Mary uh, because somehow that's just what he's supposed to do. It's socially expected. Anything you want to give, he is submissive to Joseph and Mary because that's what God's calling on his life is. It's not only right, according to the scripture, honoring his father and mother, but it's right in accordance with what God's plan is. What it must have been like for Joseph and Mary to have the submission of the Son of God in their home. I would have been scared to be a parent to the Messiah. He'd realize, I realize how many parenting things I do wrong in my own family. Can you imagine if Jesus was able to take score? Say what that was like? But I have a feeling Jesus wasn't a know-it-all to them. He wasn't constantly saying, well, you know, if you do this instead of that. Jesus was submissive. Then we come to this in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, echoing what was in verse 40, that he's continuing to grow. He's growing not only physically into being a larger person, a larger, you know, physical body, but he's growing in wisdom. How can the Son of God, the eternal Word, one with the Father, grow in wisdom? What a strange understanding. Were there things he had to learn that he didn't know? Well, it's my belief that when the Scripture talks about wisdom, wisdom is knowledge lived out. You can be smart and not wise, can't you? Amen. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing it doesn't belong in a fruit salad. Wisdom is knowledge 
applied and learned. Jesus learned empathy in his life here. And I don't mean that there was something clinically that he didn't know, but he stood at Lazarus's tomb as a friend and wept over the loss of his friend. And that was an experience for him that was unique to being fully God and fully man at the same time. That not only did he know from afar and a distance what the truth was, he lived it out. Jesus grew in his experience of walking in our flesh and his walking the path that God had set for him. He grew in wisdom. He was submissive. He grew in stature and in favor or in grace uh, with God and man. You know, Jesus' submission, his wisdom and favor sets a powerful example for us, doesn't it? If Jesus, the Son of God, could be submissive to those who were in authority over him, we should probably be submissive to those who are in authority over us. If Jesus could grow in wisdom and not just coast through life as the Son of God, then maybe you and I need to grow in wisdom and have real spiritual truth and impact make you know, their way into our life. If Jesus could grow in a favor with the Lord and say that, you know, as the years go by, I want the Lord to be pleased with me. So much so that when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, what does God say from heaven? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The favor of God. That for God to be able to look at us and to, uh, to be pleased. One of my favorite Christian musicians, a guy named Rich Mullins, if you ever sang Awesome God or uh, uh, Oh God, You Are My God and I Will Ever Praise You, if you ever sang any of those songs, he, he wrote a lot of Christian songs that were, that were well known. But he wrote, wrote one song called um, Boy Like Me, Man Like You, where he talked about Jesus' childhood. Don't we all just, we can't wait to get to heaven and hear what Jesus' teenage years were like, can we? Know what it was like for him as a kid. Rich writes this about the Lord Jesus at a young age. Did you grow up hungry? Did you grow up fast? Did the little girls giggle when you walked past? Did you wonder what it was that made them laugh? Did you wrestle with a dog and lick his nose? Did you play beneath the spray of a water hose? Did you ever make angels in the winter snow? No, I know there weren't water hoses and things like that, but it's just. Did you ever get scared playing hide and seek? Did you try not to cry when you scraped your knee? Did you ever skip a rock across a quiet creek? You were a boy like I was once, but were you a boy like me? I grew up around Indiana. You grew up around Galilee. But if I ever really do grow up, Lord, I want to grow up and be just like you. Jesus walked the earth, and he did so growing in wisdom and stature and favor with the Lord, that God's plan in this moment, even with him being the wisest one in the room at the temple at 12 years of age, was him, for him to wait. And he was going to wait some more. And in submission to his parents, he waited until the time that God had prepared uh, before setting forth on his earthly ministry. And I, I think I've been uh, challenged a lot by reading that question repeatedly this week. Mary's question to Jesus and then his response back, why were you looking for me? Why did you not know where I'd be? In essence, why were you not willing to examine uh, the, the things that I would be about and what I would do? Now, there's one other thing that I want to share with you tonight. This is, a, this is the picture that's at the top of your handout, at least a part of it. These are uh, some...
calendars with major events given from certain years around the time where Jesus was, uh, you know, growing up. That this is around 2120 BC, and then there's another one here from 14 to 21 AD, and so they would list some major accomplishments. If you ever had a school yearbook growing up, sometimes in the back pages they'd say, oh yeah, you know, my, my yearbook from graduating says 1999. This is uh, what kind of clothes people wore. These were the sports teams people liked. This is the way, you know, girls wore their hair, whatever it was, you know. This is the music people listened to. That was these kind of things as well. Interestingly enough, even though they were from the largest empire in the world, the things written on these tablets have been largely forgotten and have made no real impact on society. Now, you might remember me mentioning before, several weeks ago, that we know now from the, the dating system and some events there that the man who used our current calendar was a little bit off. Jesus was actually born between 4 and 6 BC, so four to six years before himself, oddly enough, if you want to take the joke far enough. But 4 to 6 BC was the time period in which he was born, sometime in that range, and so we're able to go from there and move forward just a little bit and say, well, what was going on when Jesus was 12 years old? Now, it seems likely that he was probably born in, you know, 4 or 5 BC. So around the time where he's 12, this was on the heels of events that were taking place in the Roman Empire. You remember reading in Matthew's gospel that when they come back to, uh, out of Egypt and they're coming back to, to Judea, that they realize that uh, Herod's dead, but his, Herod Archelaus is now the one that's in power. So they say, well, we're going to go up to Nazareth and stay there. In 6 AD, 6 AD, which had been right around the time of the story we look at today, Herod Archelaus was deposed. And not only that, the Roman Empire made the area which was uh, Judea into the Roman province of Judea, didn't change it up too much. But what that now meant was no longer was Israel going to be an outside kingdom that could pay tribute and be a sort of vassal. They now were part of the Roman Empire, completely absorbed. And so that gave rise to people who were uh, beginning to call themselves zealots. You remember a man named Simon the Zealot that was one of the disciples? Josephus tells us that that was kind of a fourth faction in, in the Jewish culture, you had the Pharisees, and you had the Sadducees, and you had the Herodians, and you had the Zealots, the people who got really fired up politically about some things and wanted some radical change. In 6 AD, there was a man named Judas the Galilean. The book of Acts actually even refers to him in the speech of a man named Gamaliel who says about the Lord Jesus, well, let's just write it out and see what happens. Don't try to go against it or else, you know, if God is in it, you won't be able to fight it. And if God's not in it, it'll go away. But he references this man, Judas the Galilean, who rose up in 6 AD and began to call on the Judean people to stop paying taxes to the Romans. And it didn't go very well. And so the Lord Jesus at 12 years of age is in the temple. And it is at a time of great political upheaval in Judea, in Israel. That this region has now been combined with Samaria and Galilee and some others into one cohesive place. They're all now fully under the Roman Empire, fully oppressed in their mind. And you have people starting to rise up to say, this is going to be the one who we can follow and get behind. And he's going to lead us to the promised land. And it's in that environment that at 12 years old, Jesus is speaking in the temple 
largely unknown except to the people who were there. In 1809, the world was following with bated breath the march of Napoleon and waiting with feverish impatience for the latest war news. And all the while, in their own homes, babies were being born. During that year, William Gladstone was born in Liverpool, Alfred Tennyson in Somersby, Oliver Wendell Holmes in Massachusetts, Felix Mendelssohn in Hamburg, and Abraham Lincoln in Kentucky. For those who were walking through 1809 and the perspective of what that year was, could only focus on the war, the fear, and the difficulty. And they weren't able to see what hope lay in the babies who were born. In 6 AD, instability was raging in the area of Judea. And the Son of God was speaking with eternal wisdom as a 12-year-old boy in the temple. Few heard it, but many would come to hear that wisdom in time. So we, not, me, uh, we need not lose hope, do we? And we need not look past the fact that history and its cycles and its ups and downs, Jesus is wiser, better, and stronger than whatever we might face. Father in heaven, thank you that in Jesus' picture of submission and favor and wisdom, we can find teaching even for ourselves. How much more so do we need to be submissive to you, to grow in wisdom that you only offer, and to find the grace, the favor through Christ that only you give. And so, Lord, thank you for the pattern of the Lord Jesus, willing, patient, and wise. And so when we feel like Mary and Joseph, flustered, confused, and perhaps even at times feeling wronged, may you help us to want to be about our Father's business above all else. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.